Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. For his life and his death and his resurrection. Lord, we know that it is in Christ that we have forgiveness of sin and hope. And the promise of eternal life. And Heavenly Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. And that's change hearts. Lord, I am keenly aware that there are no words that I can say or persuasive arguments that I can give. Lord, I know that I might be able to change someone's mind, but I know that I cannot change their heart. So, Lord, I pray that you will do that work. Lord, for the hard heart, Lord, I pray that you would soften it. For the guilty heart, Lord, I pray that you would forgive that heart. And for the broken heart, Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would provide comfort, salve, medicine. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. As we've studied the 15th chapter of John, you'll remember that it began with a parable in verses 1 through 11. It continued with a commandment in verses 12 through 17. And then dramatically it ends with a warning in verses 18 through 27. Jesus has been talking about fruit bearing. What it means to abide in Him. What it means to be a follower of Jesus. We were given... A commandment to love in verse 12. Remember, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. We were given an incentive to love in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Then we were told about our community of love in verses 14 through 17. And with the commandment to love and with the incentive to love and with the community of love, there would come opposition. There would come hatred. There would come persecution. And we were told to expect hatred, persecution, opposition. Because if they hated Jesus, it only stands to reason that they will hate us. And so the chapter progresses from fruit bearing in verses 1 through 11 to loving in verses 12 through 17, to witnessing in verses 26 and 27. In order to grow and in order to love and in order to endure suffering, you're going to need supernatural help. You're going to need power. And the supernatural help and the power Jesus provides for us, comes in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus gives us a special revelation about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be sent by both the Father and the Son to witness to the disciples concerning the Savior, it says in verse 26. This will result in power for the disciples to witness to the world about Jesus, according to verse 27. So in these two verses, we are given the promise and the power to know Jesus and the promise and the power to share Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In the previous chapter, Jesus gave us a brief introduction to the Holy Spirit. If you have your Bible, just turn one page back to chapter 14 in verse 26. You'll remember that there it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. In chapter 14, we learned the meaning of that word helper. It was the Greek word para 
kletos. Para is a word in the Greek language that describes someone who comes alongside to render assistance, help, or aid. And so a parakletos in the first century was a sort of triple A. You know, like when you break down on the side of the road, you pull out your AAA card and you call for help. And then they come and they rescue you wherever you are. So in this particular context, when you are distressed, when you are confused, when you are hurt, the helper comes. And you'll remember Jesus gave the promise the helper would come and abide with you forever. And that's great because you don't have to renew your membership with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and is with you always. And see, this is the 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 key concept. The presence of the Holy Spirit isn't a temporary solution to wickedness and weakness and weirdness. The Holy Spirit is going to be a permanent solution. The Holy Spirit will abide with the believer forever. And we would do remember to well to remember that the Holy Spirit within us responds to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to take these two verses and we're going to look at them very, very closely. And the reason why we're going to do that is because they are going to provide for us the framework whereby we will be able to understand the 16th chapter of John. Jesus gives us a revelation concerning the mystery and the ministry and the ministry of his close companion. This close companion is called the Spirit of Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11. The ministry and majesty of the Holy Spirit, in part, is to draw attention to Jesus. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. And oddly enough, as overwhelming as this concept might be to some of you, as the Holy Spirit draws your attention to Jesus, the Holy Spirit also conceals his own presence. For those of you who wonder and you think, well, you know, the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit seems to be like a kid who's born on December 25th. He's always getting a raw deal. Here's your birthday present and your Christmas present. I mean, the Holy Spirit seems like the invisible third wheel who never gets the praise and the honor and the worship and the glory that is accorded to the Father and the Son. And nothing could be further from the truth. Because the Holy Spirit loves and lives To draw your attention to Jesus. Now, almost everything we know about the Holy Spirit comes from the words of Jesus. As a matter of fact, does the Bible teach that the Holy Spirit is a person? Or is the Holy Spirit an invisible force, an impersonal energy? Or is the Holy Spirit simply a description of the power of God? Or is the Holy Spirit the common bond of love between God's people? William Brent Ashby has written a very helpful pamphlet. It's in our resource room under those Rose publications entitled The Names of the Holy Spirit. And in that pamphlet, he writes, and I quote, The scriptures call him the spirit of grace and the spirit of mercy and the spirit of comfort. But he is also called the spirit of truth. And judgment, discernment, indicating that he's more than simply a warm, fuzzy feeling that we get when we come together. And then he goes on and he writes, some understand that the Holy Spirit is the mind or the intellect behind creation. To be sure, he is the spirit of wisdom. He is the spirit of understanding. But the Holy Spirit is far more than a cosmic computer. He is, in fact, God, the third person of the Trinity. And so in verse 26, we welcome the Holy Spirit. Look what Jesus once again does. He says, but when the helper, same word, parakletos, comes, whom I shall send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, 
who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So when Jesus reintroduces the subject of the Holy Spirit, he begins with the why of the Holy Spirit. The helper, the comforter, comes to provide comfort, counsel, strength. Remember, the immediate context has been the disciples will be hated. They will be persecuted. They will face trial. They will face tragedy. But we have a a source of comfort. We have a source of strength in times of trouble. And now Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And we have to understand something that in a world filled with literal lies, in a world filled with false claims, in a world filled with fantastic fictions, half-truth, exaggeration, hyperbole, the spirit of truth comes and tells the truth. Now, you need to understand something. It isn't truth simply in a generic sense. It is the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about God. It's the truth about sin. The truth about salvation. We live in a world where people question whether or not there is even such a thing as absolute truth. Go to almost any college or university across this great nation. Take time and spend a little bit of time with any incoming graduate or excuse me, incoming freshman class. Ask them the question, do you believe that there's such a thing as truth? Something that is true for everyone in every circumstance, in every generation, the vast majority will say no. But I'm here to tell you something. Jesus believed in absolute truth. As a matter of fact, in the earlier chapter, in John chapter 14, Jesus went so far as to say, I am the truth. And when he says that he is the truth, And that he is sending the spirit of truth. Remember what you already know. As we've walked the journey from the upper room. As we've gone past the temple. As we've made our way into the Kidron Valley. As we're walking up the mountain to the place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus will pray. And he will shed great drops of blood because of the agitation. He will be arrested. He will be imprisoned. He will be tortured. He will be taken outside. He will be affixed to a cruel Roman cross. They will take Roman nails. They will drive his flesh into the wood. And they will place him between heaven and earth. And he is about to die. And he will rise from the dead. He will spend 40 days with the apostles and disciples, and then he will leave. But when he leaves, the truth won't leave. Because Jesus will send the spirit of truth. Now, remember what I've already told you. That truth, in order to be true, has these characteristics. Number one, it has to correspond to reality. Truth corresponds to reality. Number two, in order for truth to be true, it must be immutable. That means it's not subject to change. Number three, truth, in order to be true, must be incorrigible. That means it's not subject to perfection. It's true always, in every circumstance. Now, it's been my experience that I've found four things that are forever true. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So what's the fourth thing that's forever true? All that they say and all that they do. And so that constitutes the body of knowledge that we call truth. Remember, Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John chapter 8, verse 44. The reason why Satan is called the father of lies is is because he is a liar, the Bible says, and the truth is not in him. 
The Bible says that Satan has chosen a path that excludes God and perverts and distorts the truth of God. Jesus told the truth. He is going to leave. The Holy Spirit is preparing to come. The Holy Spirit leads us to truth. And since the Holy Spirit leads us to truth, he leads us away from error. And so, in John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. The Holy Spirit points out the truth. And here's part of the concept that you have to understand. Not only does the Holy Spirit point you to the truth, but the Holy Spirit points you away from error. Jesus told his disciples that the Father would send the Holy Spirit in my name. When Jesus uses that expression, in my name, he means according to the authority And according to the character of me, that's what he's basically saying. So the father sends the spirit, we learn in chapter 14. But then in chapter 15, we learn that both the father and the son send the spirit. The Holy Spirit proceeds, it says, from both the father and the son. By the way, that word is very, very important. It's translated in such a way that it means either proceeding from a source or proceeding on a a mission. So the way that that we would think about it is, is it means it's preceding from a source or proceeding to a mission. As a matter of fact, the phrase in the Greek language is, is interesting enough and historically important enough that I want to tell you the whole phrase. It's. Para, tau, patros, ekporeotei. That means from the side of the Father. And the reason why this becomes important is because the Holy Spirit proceeds from the side of the Father. It is not the Father or the Son. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person who is neither Father or Son. And so in this sense, the Holy Spirit is a divine person. So we should ask the question, why do we believe that the Holy Spirit is a person? Well, there are several reasons, but let me just give you a few. Number one, he is treated like a person in both the Old and the New Testament. Second of all, he functions, acts like a person. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit describes or the Bible describes the Holy Spirit in terms of cognitive presence. And by that, I mean thinking. The the, the Latin word cogito means a word that means that you're capable of self-awareness and speech. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit in terms of having thought processes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, But God has revealed them, speaking of the truth about Jesus, to us through His Spirit. Yes, the deep things of God. And so, what we're talking about is the mind processes. The Holy Spirit reasons and responds. And not only does the Holy Spirit reason and respond, but the Holy Spirit has feelings like a person. The Holy Spirit is capable of giving and receiving love. In Romans 15:30, it says, Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Not only is the Holy Spirit capable of giving love and receiving love, the Holy Spirit can be blasphemed, grieved, insulted. As a matter of fact, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The context of that statement is believe the truth about Jesus. Because when you reject the truth about Jesus, you grieve the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, when you embrace a lie of any sort, 
you grieve the Holy Spirit. When you walk in a way that's inconsistent with the love of God and the character of God, you grieve the Holy Spirit. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, it says, Of how much more punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? Now, if everyone left this building and you went over to Red Rocks, could you love the rock, grieve the rock, or insult the rock? Good. No is the right answer. This is good. The rock is not a person. By the way, if you do love the rock, grieve the rock, insult the rock, have a communication with the rock, and the rock responds back to you, that means that there is some mental issues that we're going to have to deal with. But you see, the reason why we're talking that way is personhood, by its very definition, means thought, feelings, choice. This becomes the very attributes of a person. By the way, one of the many titles of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Grace. It says in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God's Spirit is called a merciful spirit. We come to know God's grace only when the spirit opens our heart. Throughout the Bible, the spirit is pictured as making choices. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. The Bible seems to indicate that the Holy Spirit is both the giver and the decider of gifts. And so, if someone has thought and someone has feelings and someone has choice, these are the attributes of a person. And so the Holy Spirit comforts. The Holy Spirit commands. The Holy Spirit gives understanding. The Holy Spirit speaks. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. The Holy Spirit was treated like a person in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, Peter, in speaking to Ananias, said, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? You can't lie to a force. You can't lie to energy. Imagine you get up in the morning and you flip open the, the bathroom light and you speak to the light and you go, I am the most attractive and exciting man in the universe. Does the light laugh at you? Does the light blink on and off? Blinking agreement? You can't lie to a light. But you can lie to yourself. And you can lie to each other. And so students of the Bible and church history are well aware of the controversies surrounding this verse. By the way, just as a historical aside... The controversy over whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father or alone, alone or from the Father and the Son led to the controversy that basically separated the Western Church from the Eastern Church. It was the controversy of whether or not the Spirit proceeded from the Father only or from the Father and the Son. As a matter of fact, this verse and that concept created a schism that separated the East from the West. Why do you suppose that is? Well, because the early church fathers interpreted the meaning of the phrase proceeds from the Father and the Son to mean that the Holy Spirit goes forth eternally and the significance of being that the Holy Spirit provides the medium of fellowship and communication between the Father and the Son, it becomes one of the mechanisms of constancy, of unity and trinity. Because clearly the Bible says that there's only one God. But the Bible says that the Father is God. 
and that the Son is God and that the Holy Spirit is God. The meaning may point to the mystery of the relationship between Father and Son and Spirit, but I'm going to suggest to you that it has more likely a far more ordinary meaning. That the Holy Spirit proceeds, I'm going to suggest to you that it means that the Holy Spirit, acting on his own volition, voluntarily does the work. Now, does the Bible say he's sent by the Father? Yes. Does the Bible say that he's sent by the Son? Yes. So is the Holy Spirit under orders of the Father and Son to obey the Father and the Son? In a very real sense, yes. But is the, is the Holy Spirit doing this voluntarily? What is motivating the Holy Spirit? And the simple answer is given in what seems like a simple phrase, but it's awesome. Read it for yourself. He will testify of me. This seems to be the motivation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit points people to Jesus because the Holy Spirit wants to exalt the life, the love, the role, the sacrifice, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if you've ever gone to a church or you've ever been involved in a service where it says this is the Holy Spirit, but Jesus is never mentioned his life, his love, his sacrifice, his resurrection. It probably isn't the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit draws attention to Jesus, he testifies to Jesus. Now, clearly, we are taught in the Bible that we have victory through the Holy Spirit. Remember, he's called the spirit of truth. So we have victory over ignorance and and lies. But we also have victory over sorrow because the Holy Spirit is the comforter. We have victory in the midst of hatred and persecution and isolation. We have victory over the flesh because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that when you receive Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives inside of your heart and occupies you in such a way that your life is changed. But the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Revelation in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Wisdom in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. It, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Understanding in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. So the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Prophecy in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Which means that the Holy Spirit inspires true prophecy because the Holy Spirit is the source of prophecy and it is the Holy Spirit that helps us understand the word of God. So, by the way, if you need help understanding the word of God, what's the best source of information? The Holy Spirit. This is why John will later write in 1 John, you don't have need for anyone to teach you because you have a teacher. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, I thank God that I have a job and that you let me get up here every Sunday and say these things. But they're only going to be meaningful things and helpful things if they're consistent with the character of Christ and the revelation of God by the Holy Spirit. I might be able to persuade you about certain things, but I can't change you under any circumstance. It's only the power of God inside of you that can change you. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted desperately to change your children? Or you wanted to change your wife? Or God knows... For wives to change their husbands. And then you get frustrated. Because you're unable to do so. Because the 
fundamental provision of change within the heart has to come from a supernatural and an invisible source. As a matter of fact, later in chapter 16, verse 13 and 14, if you turn your Bible just one page in the next direction, in, in John chapter 16, verse 13, it says, However... When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. The passage is really interesting and we don't have time to talk about it at length. I will when we get to that particular portion. But it seems to indicate a hierarchy within the Godhead. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit submits to both Father and Son. As a matter of fact, Jesus reminds them, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth. And here's the little clue. For He will not speak on His own authority. If he's not speaking on his own authority, then whose authority is he speaking on? It's the authority of the Father. And it's the authority of the Son. So again, if you go to a church where someone is doing something really weird and they're blaming it on the Holy Spirit, you should say, shame on you. The Holy Spirit's not weird. When I got saved... I'd grown up in a religious tradition where, you know, you pretty much go to church and everybody minds their own business. You sit quietly. You fold your hands. You you don't speak unless you're spoken to. When they say get up, you get up. When you, they say get down, you get down. And so the week after I got saved, my friend invited me to this church. And I've never been to a Protestant church. And so they brought me to this church and everybody was yelling and screaming and they were speaking in a language that I had no idea. And I have been around foreign speaking people. My father was from the island of Sicily. My grandparents spoke no English whatsoever. So I know what foreign languages sounded like, but this was not anything like I had ever heard. And people were yelling and screaming and they were running up and down the aisles. And I thanked God that the chandeliers were way up high because I thought that we were going to start swinging and foaming at the mouth. I was scared out of my wits. But I had enough presence of mind to say, What's going on? And this person whispered back to me, It's the Holy Spirit. And you got, I got to tell you something, that just freaked me out. Because, remember, I'm a brand new Christian and I don't know everything about everything, but if the Holy Spirit is God, then this was something that was very, very, very confusing to me. But it's not supposed to be. Because guess what? Is Jesus weird? No. Will the Holy Spirit do something that's contrary to the character of the Father? Or the word of the Father? Or the character of the Son? The answer is no. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, it says, He will take care of mine. I love that particular little verse because the Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus. And when the Holy Spirit does his job, he's taking care of you. The Holy Spirit delights in pointing you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit delights in reminding you of the love of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the power to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit does that, he fulfills his ministry. Should we single the Holy Spirit out for worship? Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit is worshipped. 
when we worship the Father and the Son. When you glorify the Father, you're glorifying the Son. And when you glorify both Father and Son, you are glorifying the Spirit. R.A. Torrey writes, and I quote, Worship is a definite act of the creature in relation to God. Worship is bowing to God in adoring acknowledgement and contemplation of himself and the perfection of his being, unquote. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, in this most amazing verse, at least in one translation, it reads, quote, For we are the circumcision who worship the Spirit of God. When he says we are the circumcision, what he's talking about is the true covenant people. The people who have a right relationship with God are the ones who worship the Spirit of God. And you'll remember that Jesus said to the woman in, in John chapter 4, he says, We worship what we know, and they that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And it's in that context that we read the very next verse. Look at verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. If the primary job of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus, you are bearing witness when you point people to Jesus. Because you're doing exactly what the Holy Spirit is doing. As a matter of fact, it says, and you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. What does that mean? For those of you who have been following along in John's gospel, when we began in chapter one and then went to chapter two and we we read about how Jesus turned the water into wine. When we read about how Jesus opened blind eyes, how he healed the lame man, how he fed the 5,000, how he walked on water, how he brought Lazarus back from the dead. These are the men who have walked with him from the very beginning, who are aware of what he has said and aware that of what he's done. And so it stands to reason that what that means, bearing witness, remember the definition of a witness. In order to be a witness, a person has to, number one, be aware of the facts. Number two, in order to be a witness, a person also has to have both the ability and the willingness to communicate those facts. And number three, in order to be a witness, you have to have a reputation for honesty. And so if you know the truth, it's not enough. You must know the truth and then be willing to tell the truth. But knowing the truth and telling the truth becomes a very difficult thing to do if you have a reputation for not telling the truth. Have you ever said to someone, I want, I, I so want to believe you. But you've told me things that aren't true. And so I, I'm suspect whether or not I can believe this. But Jesus is reminding them, you've been with me from the beginning. By the way, do you think the Holy Spirit knows the truth about Jesus? Do you think the Holy Spirit is willing to tell the truth about Jesus? Do you think the Holy Spirit has a reputation for honesty? If in the opening chapters of the book of Acts, the Lord is willing to kill Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit. Does that sound like a person who will also lie? And so I need you to understand something. When it says, and you also will bear witness, witness begins from friendship and fellowship. And that's the point that he's talking about. You will bear witness because you've been with me in intimacy and fellowship. The disciples are able to testify based on their companionship with Christ throughout Christ's ministry. And in this sense, there can be no witness without personal experience. 
you can't testify to something that you yourself have never experienced. Have you ever experienced the love of God? Have you ever experienced the forgiveness of God? Have you ever experienced the hope that's found in Christ? Have you ever experienced the power of the Holy Spirit to fundamentally change you? The reason why this becomes important is because in order for you to bear witness, you have to make sure that you have settled that issue of friendship and fellowship with God. That you yourself have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And since the Holy Spirit's job is to point people to Jesus, then I'm going to suggest something to you. That my primary job as the pastor of this church is to point you to Jesus. Our collective job as a body of believers, is to point other people to Jesus. And so, you know what that means? We don't exist to point people to a government. We don't point people to a political party. We don't point people to an educational system. We don't point people to social reform. We don't point people to judicial reform. We don't point people to economic reform. We don't point people to psychological fulfillment. And the reason why I'm bringing all of this stuff up, it isn't because there's no place for justice. There's no place for peace. There's no place for prophecy. There is a place for justice and there is a place for peace and there is a place for prophecy. But justice and peace and prophecy begin with having a right relationship with God in Christ. And if the Lord Jesus Christ saves sinners, and if the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit transforms sinners, then why in the world would anyone want to point anyone to me or to Calvary Chapel? Our effectiveness is only in direct proportion to our effectiveness to point people to Jesus. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul writes, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Peter described himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. John the Apostle later banished to the island of Patmos because of the Word of God, he says, and because of the testimony of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 9. Let me just be blunt here. Peter, James, John, Paul say the most important thing in their ministry is to be a witness of Jesus. So here's the question. How important do you suppose it is to be a witness of Jesus? There's nothing more important And so guess what? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all in, on board concerning the mission. By the way, one of the things that a jury and a judge look at when they hear expert testimony or testimony concerning the facts of a case When a judge is looking at a witness, when the jury is looking at a witness, you know what they're looking for? That the person knows what they're talking about, that they're saying it in a coherent fashion, that they have a reputation for honesty, and that there is a sense of conviction in the person's demeanor and voice and expression. If you look like a liar and talk like a liar and act like a liar, Does it stand to reason that people are not going to believe you? And so your witness is in direct proportion to your willingness to tell the truth about Jesus. You know, a long time ago, there was a popular radio program from 1949 to 1956. It was called Dragnet. It became really popular on television 
between 1967 and 1970. Some of you remember the character of Sergeant Joe Friday. He was this deadpan actor who frequently reminded people during the course of an investigation to say, just the facts, ma'am. Remember, he'd say, my name is Friday. I carry a badge. Well, what Sergeant Friday actually said was, all we want are the facts. Well, here goes. My name is Gino Geraci. I carry a Bible. These are the facts. One God. Yet the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. There are not three gods. There is one God. The Holy Spirit is called the breath of the Almighty in Job 33.4. The Holy Spirit is called Counselor, Comforter, Spirit of Counsel, Eternal Spirit, Free Spirit, God, Good Spirit, Lord, Power of the Highest, Spirit of Might, Spirit of Adoption, Spirit of Burning, Spirit of Judgment, Spirit of Christ, Spirit of glory, Spirit of God, Spirit of Yahweh, Spirit of grace, Spirit of knowledge, Spirit of truth, Spirit of prophecy, Spirit of revelation, Spirit of the Father, Spirit of the fear of the Lord, Spirit of the Son. You know what's interesting? The facts are interesting. But when you're in pain, you need more than facts. When you're persecuted and isolated, you need more than the facts. When you're terrified and alone, you need more than the facts. When you are inundated with information that may or may not be true, you need to know that the person who is speaking to you is telling you the truth. John Phillips writes, This Almighty One, the personal Holy Spirit, armed with the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, has invaded this planet to exalt Jesus, to hinder the work of Satan, to rescue souls from hell, to energize believers, to stand empowering them and leading them and using them. No wonder Peter, James, and John powerless, afraid, and ineffective, suddenly become brave, convincing, and successful. Once the Holy Spirit came, there was no stopping them. (laughs) Because you've been with me since the beginning. Because you've walked with Jesus. The facts are good to know. But you need more than the facts. You need the Holy Spirit, the power, the presence, the filling of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the believers initiated into God's family by the Holy Spirit. The believers identified with the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit. The believer is infused with power by the Holy Spirit. You know, Dwight Moody gave this illustration He was speaking to a fairly large audience and he brought with him a empty cup and he placed it on the podium and he asked the audience, how can I get the air out of this cup? And one person suggested, well, what you can do is you can create a vacuum by putting a pump and sucking the air out and and thereby making a perfect vacuum. And Moody said, no, it would shatter the glass. And other people made other impossible suggestions. And finally, after people had been speaking for quite some time, Moody smiled. He picked up a pitcher of water and he poured it into the glass. Ta-da! The air is gone. And the reason why this becomes such an important illustration for each and every one of us is because sometimes there's some pet sin, there's some pernicious wickedness, there's some reoccurring problem that seems to keep us from entering into a, a, a strong, victorious walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is going to, again, sound amazing to you, but God isn't interested in, in you simply 
getting rid of your sin. He wants you to get rid of your sin by being filled with the Spirit. Yes, we repent. And yes, we turn from our sin. And yes, we turn to the Savior. But then we allow the Holy Spirit to come inside of us. Fill us. Someone wrote, this is the secret of the holy. Not our holiness, but Him. Jesus, empty us and fill us with Thy fullness to the brim. By the way, not only is that going to be our prayer, but that's going to be our focus. As we march through the 16th chapter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do pray for that person with a broken heart, an empty heart, a wicked heart. Lord, for the broken heart, I pray that the spirit of comfort would come. For the empty heart, Lord, I pray that the spirit of fullness would come. For the wicked heart, Lord, I pray that the spirit of grace would come. Lord, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do. Lord, I pray that we would come to a place. Not just simply of acknowledging Jesus as the historical figure who lived and died and rose from the dead. But a person who lived for us. Who died for me. And who rose from the dead for me. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would address those issues that are deep inside of our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would forever give up the hopeless desire to change ourselves. But, Lord, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to forgive us. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to empower us. That we would allow the Holy Spirit to create the mechanism whereby whereby we could walk in submission and humility to the Word of God. Lord, we pray that it's the Spirit of God that would produce the character of Christ deep inside of our heart. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.